most of you, either as congregants at Temple Beth Shalom of the East Valley or as the person who gave birth to me, um, but for, for all those who are uh, tuning in either on Facebook or later, um, hi, um, I'm Rabbi Brody, Temple Beth Shalom of the East Valley in Chandler, Arizona, um, and today I wanted to teach a little bit about some of the kind of fundamental sources of Jewish tradition that discuss questions of what is a community's obligation to provide for the, those who have the least among us? Um, it's an issue that's close to my heart and it's something I think that, especially in the wake of a pandemic and the economic hardships that so many people are suffering through right now, um, it's something we should be conscious of. Um, I know at least one person on this uh, on the call right now has been directly involved in making sure members of our community do have food to eat. So I want to give a special acknowledgement to Barbara, who coordinates the kind of meal support and planning for our community. Um, I think it's wonderful that you're here, and we're going to you're going to see where I get some of this urge to make sure we've got those programs in place. Um, so without much further ado, um, let's dive in. Um, just to give a little bit of framing, um, I believe very strongly that as a rabbi, my job is first to help everyone understand the text as best as it's written, and then from there to step out of the role as teacher and become part of the conversation as just another Jew in the pews, to kind of to figure out how we want to apply those sources in our environment. My expertise is not in policy or public planning, it's in text. So I don't want to step out of my role um, by trying to tell you what the sources say about what we should do today in a particular policy situation just to give us the direction of the conversation. So with that, I'm going to share my screen. Um, and before we start, I want to make sure, giving my computer a second, there we go. Can everyone who is on the call see the screen? Yes. Okay. Awesome. So everyone eats fundamental rights of the individual and the community. Um, if you ever want to reach out to me, the email at the bottom, rabbibrody at tbsev.org is the best way to do so. Um, so let us start. If I can get this to, there we go. So we're going to start with a text from the Mishnah. Um, the, a collection of teachings that was memorized and collected um, that dates about to the first or second century common era. And this comes from a tractate, a, a book um, of the Mishnah called Pe'ah, which ostensibly focuses on the obligations to keep the corners of your field for those in need or who cannot provide for themselves so that they can harvest food to eat and live. And the, the Mishnah we're going to look at today comes from the very end of that book. Um, so I offer the Hebrew if you're interested in following, but for the sake of keeping everyone sane and not dealing too much with the back and forth, I'm just going to read the English. Um, and so we begin, one does not give a poor person who is traveling from place to place requesting tzedakah less than a loaf worth a pundion, which is one forty-eighth of a sella when the standard price of grain is for se'ah for a sella. So I'm sure we all know exactly how much that is worth. Don't worry about it. That's not the important part. The important part here is that we have to give a person who is traveling, who is asking for help, at least a loaf of bread worth a certain amount. This is not a well, but what if, there's not a lot of what ifs. It's this is, if somebody comes to you and says, I'm hungry, and they're wandering through the town, you are obligated to give them a certain amount of food right off. Now the assumption here is that this person is just wandering through town or is on their way somewhere. But if that person sleeps in that place, so they decide to rest for the night in your town, you are obligated, one gives him provisions for lodging. So if they decide to stay, not only are you obligated to feed them, you also need to make it possible for them to sleep there comfortably. And if he stays over Shabbat, then they must give him enough food for three meals. 
So if they stay for Shabbat, not only do you have to feed them, you have to make sure they have enough food for three meals. The first thing that I ask when I read a Mishnah like this is, okay, but what are the dimensions, what are the limits, the extremes of all of these details? We've got a detail of you've got to feed somebody a certain amount, and that's if they're wandering. If they stay for the night, you have to make sure they've got some sort of accommodation for sleeping. And if they stay for Shabbat, you need to give them three meals. So what do we define as accommodations? Do we have to put them up in the best room in the house? Do we have to make sure they've got a barn to sleep in? Um, do we need to make sure that you know they've got a blanket? What is that? Um, and for Shabbat, what do we mean by a meal? If we're counting meals, we should have some idea of what that means, right? Although it seems like the Mishnah gives us a baseline for a meal by giving us that minimum amount of bread. Now, we are not the only people to ask these questions. Um, expanding on the Mishnah, there are two sources in the Babylonian Talmud, which is an expansion on a study of an exploration of the laws of the Mishnah and other statements from rabbis of the time of the Mishnah, and in an effort to kind of reconcile or at least flesh out the debater dimensions. How I just mentioned, we want to ask how much is the meal? What does it mean by providing lodging? These are all questions that the rabbis get into. So this comes from Baba Batra, um, which is part of the kind of torts or damages law in the Talmud. And the Gemara, the Talmud asks, what is meant by provisions for, lo for lodging? That question we had, right? Rav Papa said, a bed and a pillow. So Rav Papa, great rabbi of the Talmud, gives his opinion that seems to be what we go with. What we are obligated to do for someone who is staying the night, who is otherwise unable, who is defined as an ani, a poor person, is that we have to give them at least a bed to sleep in and a pillow to sleep on. That's fairly generous, right? Some person's wandering down your street and they need to crash for the night. You have to give them something to sleep on and something to put under their head. Cool. And if they spend Shabbat in that place, one gives them food for three meals, we've got that. Still not sure exactly what three meals means, but we have to give them three meals. Now, we get in this Gemara an actual challenge or something that seems like it might be contradicting what the Mishnah has told us. Because it reads, a sage taught in a baraita, if a poor person was going door to door asking for tzedakah, one is not required to attend to them and give them money from the kupa. Okay, so now we have this challenge. If somebody was going door to door traveling, does, is this the same, or is going door to door the same as traveling? Is what is the difference between this person in this situation and the person that the Mishnah is talking about? These are questions we should be asking. Are they the same case or are they different? And for reference, a baraita is a source from a rabbi that is considered on equal authority, roughly, with any rabbi in the Mishnah. So if a baraita says X and the Mishnah says Y, we have to figure out how X and Y can agree because they cannot contradict each other. But in our current situation, it seems like they do. We then get a case, an example, a story that helps examine the dimensions of the situation. It is related that a certain poor person was going door to door requesting tzedakah and came before Rav Papa. Remember the rabbi in that we just had who said you don't have to give to somebody going door to door. And apparently Rav Papa was the local tzedakah collector for the area, but Rav Papa did not attend to him. Rav Sama, son of Rav Yiva, said to Rav Papa, if the master does not attend to him, nobody else will attend to him either. Should he be left to die of hunger? So this student 
this student, this rabbi who's a student of Rav Papa or in his environment, sees what Rav Papa does and actually goes to him and says, wait, are you telling us that we can let somebody die of hunger because they were going door to door? Is that what you're saying? We can all agree that's probably not what he's saying, but it seems to be an implication of Rav Papa's decision. Rav Papa says to him, to Rav Sama, but isn't it taught in a Baraita, if a poor person was going door to door asking for tzedakah, one is not required to attend him. So Rav Papa again takes the position, we, learn, we have this rule, if someone's going to door to door, we don't have to give them anything. And Rav Sama said to him, the Baraita means to say that one is not required to attend to him and give him a large gift, since he's already collecting money as he goes door to door, but one does attend to him and give him a small gift. Rav Sama is reading that Baraita, that rule, that you don't have to attend to someone going door to door, as you don't have to give him the full amount, a large gift. You don't have to give him the full amount of bread, maybe, but you can't let them go away empty-handed. That person going door to door is, just to give a little bit of a, of a higher perspective, is going door to door to try and meet their needs for the day. In a sense, they are distributing the burden of helping them, of making sure they have enough to eat, across everyone they visit. What I think this Baraita might be, what Rav Sama is reading in that Baraita, is that if someone is getting help from multiple sources, it is not required for any individual source or each individual source to give the full amount they need for that day, but it is still incumbent upon everyone they go to collectively to give them enough. And so the obligation is not to necessarily give every give someone everything they need for the day when they meet you, but to make sure you, like everyone else, is giving something so that they can assemble what they need for the day from those offerings. Now, we come to another question. What is a meal? Or how many meals are we actually supposed to eat? Really, the quantity would be is more of an interesting question for us. Nowadays, most people, especially us, you know, well, well uh, fed Americans tend to eat about, I think the, the, the recommended is three to six meals a day. Three meals, I think is the tradition, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Um, those with a more of a fitness bend might even extend that to four to six meals. Um, but we tend to eat about three meals a day. For context, the rabbis are speaking from a time and place where that kind of eating would be considered the reserve of the ultra-rich. Most people were eating roughly two meals a day, something in the morning and something in the evening. So as we turn to this question of meals, we're not going to necessarily tackle how much is in a given meal, but only that we need to give a meal. The best baseline we have for what can, constitutes a meal is from the Mishnah, and that's that certain quantity of bread that counts as enough for a meal. And that which we learned in another Mishnah, one who has sufficient food for two meals in his possession may not take food from the Tamhui that is distributed to the poor. He is not considered needy and would be taking food at the expense of people who are worse off than he. And one who has food for 14 meals, enough meals for an entire week, may not take money from the Tamhui. The Gemara asks, in accordance with whose opinion is this Mishnah? Apparently, it is neither in accordance with the opinion of the rabbis nor in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Chidka. If it were in accordance with the opinion of the rabbis, they maintain that they are 15 meals that are eaten in a week, two each day, evening and morning, and three on Shabbat. So, to take that step back, we can learn from the negative of this Mishnah what is considered sufficient meals for a person per day and per week. We'll get to a little bit more specificity about what a tamhui is and what what another type of collection that the kupa is, but right now let's leave that floating. We'll get into it. I want to stay focused on the number of meals that are required. The first is 
Because we know that someone who has two meals is not allowed to take from the tamhui, what is sometimes referred to as the charity plate, it's really tzedakah. It's a fund or a collection of food and items that is there for people to make sure they have enough to eat for the day. If they have two meals worth of food, then they're considered to have enough. Anything less than that, though, we have to read this Mishnah as saying we are required to make sure they have that much. That the fund needs to be used to ensure they have at least two meals worth of food. The threshold for enough is two meals per day. Now, if somebody had enough food for, let's say, 10 meals that week, but not enough for 14, that seems to be the cutoff for the week's amount of food. So they may not take food from the top of food. So it, if you have food for 14 meals, you may not take money from the top of hui as well. So they're looking at this from two different angles. One is, do they have enough food for the day? Two, did they have enough food for the week? If you have enough food for the day, then you can't take that day. If you have enough food for the week, then you can't take that week. I'm noticing a few confused faces, so I'm with you on this. Why are they saying the same thing for two different sources, right? If you have enough food for the day, why are we tracking the week? And if we're tracking the week, why are we worried about the day? So the answer to that is, we actually have two different levels. Like It tells us something about the Tamahui, what they understood about the frequency with which people would be fed from it. Uh, again, we'll go into a little bit more detail in a few minutes, but a tamhui is given every day. You can go get money from that fund or food from that fund daily, and you're evaluated every day. There is another type of fund called the kupa that actually is for weekly address of needs as opposed to daily. Now, just to get in the weeds here, I'm going to indulge one of my passions, which is the weird charting that can happen with rabbinic sources. When they talk about meals, we have three possible orient three possible maths or permutations to consider. And they actually result in three different totals for meals, 14, 15, and 16. So there are two things to keep in mind. There's meals during the week and there's meals on Shabbat. You might remember from the Mishnah Pe'ah that we, that we read a few minutes ago, you are required to be given three meals for Shabbat, right? But two meals every other day of the week. So if we do that math straight, you have Sunday through Friday, two meals. And I counted them for you on the chart. One, two, three, four, five, six. And then for Shabbat, you get 13, 14, and 15. Shabbat gets three, everyone else gets two. That's 15 meals, right? Okay. So, how do we square that with the Mishnah? The Mishnah says 14 meals. But if we do the math, and the Mishnah also tells us you have to have three meals for Shabbat, how do we make that math work? Now, if we go with Rabbi Chidka, there's actually 16 meals. Because he thinks there should be four meals on Shabbat. And we count them out. Because remember, Shabbat begins Friday night. So for him, Friday night would be an extra meal. And then you have three on the day. Because that, that last one is actually the evening meal for the day. You've got to fit three meals in from Friday night through Saturday until Saturday night. And then Saturday night itself could have its own meal. So the, with the fun of time, that way we keep it as Jews... Sundown count is sundown Friday night dinner is meal one for Shabbat. Saturday morning is meal two. Saturday afternoon before Havdalah, Seudash Lishit is three. And then you eat again after Shabbat is over for the evening, meal four. And so if you do the math, that's 16 meals, right? So how do we get to 14? The Gemara rejects this. Actually, the Mishnah is in accordance with the opinion of the rabbis, but we say to him, that which you want to eat at the conclusion of Shabbat, Saturday night, eat it as the third meal on Shabbat. How do we get to 14? It is still two meals a day, but 
The Friday, the Friday evening meal is meal one for Shabbat. The Saturday daytime meal is meal two. And then the evening meal for Saturday night is also the third meal for Shabbat. So you eat dinner Friday night, breakfasty lunchtime on Saturday, and then in the evening for Seudash Lishit, that also counts as dinner for Saturday night. And that is how you get 14. Now, you might be asking, why did I dive this deep into this particular detail? The reason is, I would, as much as my open heart would want us to be learning that we should feed everyone as needed and always be extra generous, our rabbis recognize that there are limits to what can and should be asked of individuals or a community in providing for one another. That there's a baseline that we're supposed to keep, but that you can't just tell somebody you have to keep giving. Um, in modern language, we might call it self-care, boundaries, uh, establishing limits on you know how far someone can can you know ask for something from you. Um, but there's also that sense that you know we shouldn't be placing a burden on others in order to provide for ourselves. Um, I don't have the text here, but so one of the other things that comes up in these sources is the rabbis are actually concerned, like this particular point concerns them such that they say it would be better to not burden others and have two meals on Shabbat than to insist on having three and require others to provide it. There is a strain in rabbinic thought that is very much a self-sufficiency oriented, self-providing kind of thinking. And I would not be doing justice to our tradition if I did not make clear that that is a valid line of thinking. It might not be where my heart goes, it might not be what I want to emphasize, but this is not about one perspective or trying to see the whole picture. And there are very much rabbis who are very concerned with not, uh, with not creating a circumstance in which people are being taken advantage of or are not encouraged to ensure their own needs are met. Uh, but another, but another implication of that, I think, is this is this tradition of this idea of having required number of meals, is to deal with the extremes of both, of saying we should give everyone everything that they could ever want, and of the pressure that says everyone should provide for themselves and we're not responsible for others. By setting this standard, we're making very clear that our tradition is not comfortable with either extreme. That there's something between everyone for themselves and no one for no one responsible for their own well-being that we need to find. And for them, 14 meals a week seems to be the baseline for food. So going back to that Mishnah, if someone has enough money for two meals, they may not take anything from the Tamchui, the charity dish, the tzedakah dish. And if they have enough money for 14 meals, they may not take any support from the kupa, the communal fund. The kupa is collected by two and distributed by three. That last line, I think, is an interesting thing to explore just for a moment. You can collect money. So the kupa is explicitly money. A tamhui could be money. It could be food. It could be, you know, you know, leftovers, things like that. The kupa is money. Why does the kupa need to be collected by two? To ensure honesty. If one person's going around collecting, then you don't know what they might pocket. They could keep some of it. It's in order to make sure everyone's above board. The assumption is not that somebody, go, a gabai who is going around collecting this is untrustworthy unless they give people reason to believe it, but it's to ensure that there is no doubt. We don't want the person, the, the people collecting money to be questioned about their integrity. And why is it distributed by three? Because in the case of needs to be distributed, it is a judgment call. And for a judgment, you need a court. And for a court, you need three people. So this is actually considered a serious affair. You're trying to have people decide whether or not somebody needs help. Well, You've got to make sure it has to be given the legal status of deciding someone's needs as part of a community. So it's not just up to the whim of one person. 
It's not up to the whim of two people. This is a formal uh, action of the community to ensure everyone has enough for their 14 meals and for their needs every week. We're now going to dive, jump from the ancient world of the rabbis, of the Mishnah and the Talmud, all the way to the very recent, like yesterday, 1500s, and the Shulchan Aruch. For some context, the Shulchan Aruch is essentially the most recent codification of Jewish law. Um, for m many, if not all, Jewish communities, it's one of the dominant codes that we look to to basically go, okay, what is the halakha? What is the law that we should be following? Um, it's about 500 years old, which should tell you there's been a lot of writing since then, expanding on it and thinking about it. But as far as codifications and canon go, Shulchan Aruch is what rabbis learn or, you know, especially in the most traditional spaces, you need to know this book, these sources, in order to be considered an expert. So this text is speaking specifically to the question of the Kupa and the Tamhui. And it comes from the section on basically property and court management. Um, this, is, this is part of the collection on this sort of issue. Um, there's other sections that deal with religious observance and the court structures and family life. Here, we're focusing on some of the damages or uh, property law. Every city in which Israelites dwell must appoint tzedakah gabayim, well-known and trustworthy men who should go about and collect from each one what he ought to give and what he has been taxed. This money should divide among the poor once a week before Shabbat, giving each one enough to suffice him for seven days. This fund is called kupah. The community should also appoint other gabayim to collect day by day from every household donations of bread and other victuals or fruit or money. This should be distributed among the poor daily towards evening to each one enough food for the day. And this is what is called tamhui. We have never seen or heard of a Jewish community that has no kupah, but in some places it is not customary to maintain a tamhui. So from the great ancient tradition of the Mishnah and Gemara, we get what is essentially a kind of somewhat modern take or, or imposition of these concepts of tamhui and kupah. The kupah is week by week. We've got people who come to, who, who go around and gather taxes. Essentially, you know, it's the it's somebody going door to door and saying, "Hey, time to give over your uh, your communal fund for the week." Communal, essentially, internal communal tax collectors. This is not a voluntary donation. This is an expectation. The kupa is you don't just give what you can; you give what you are expected to. In a moment, we'll actually go see who is expected and when they're expected to contribute. The tamhui is a day-by-day -day provision. Essentially, there's two different funds working at two different levels to make sure nobody goes without. Tamhui is day-by-day. -day. Um, think of this as kind of like the day laborer. You need enough to make sure that you need to, somebody to make sure that you've got enough to get through the day. It doesn't matter if somebody's going to come around at the end of the week to give you enough money if you're hungry today, right? If you don't have food to eat, you can't do your work. If you can't do your work, you can't support yourself. Somebody's got to make sure that everyone has enough to eat day by day. But we also have the kupa, which makes sure that, which helps smooth over any of the, the kupa is kind of like the standing support. You're making sure you have the funds to help one another. Um, for those in Phoenix, uh, the Jewish Free Loan Organization is essentially a kind of grand kupa. The idea of making sure that there is money available to support people in their times of need, to make sure that the Jewish community is not without the resources to cover things like rent or car repairs or medical bills, like that's part of the instinct. That's why Jewish free loan organizations exist, not just in Phoenix, but in a lot of other places. 
to be this kind of fund that exists to ensure that everyone in the community is not going without. The tomhui would be the, you know, making sure somebody's got dinner that night. It's the checking in daily. It's the constant evaluation. Does somebody have enough to eat today? If they don't, you give it. If they do, then they don't need it. So thinking back, that conversation we had about whether or not like the evaluation day by day, we're always concerned with making sure everyone has enough. And we do it in two different ways, day by day, week by week, to make sure that nothing gets missed. And as the Shulchan Aruch attests, the kupa is a constant, is a given in the world of Rav Karo. The Tamhui is a little bit more optional. I think we can understand a kupa makes sense. It's a little bit easier to manage as a week by week thing. The Tamhui requires a lot of very intensive labor. It, you've got to have people who can go around and check in and make sure everyone's got enough to eat and to go around and collect it to make sure that there's supplies for it. Um, in a slightly different part of this same section, a few simanim, a few chapters later, um, we get a little bit of information about the collect about how these collections work. Collections for the kupa must never be made by less than two. Remember the collected by two, because no office or communal money affairs can be created with less than two officers. But after collection, one can be trusted with it as treasurer. Therefore, two brothers may be appointed as treasurers. The distribution of tzedakah, however, must be made by no less than three people, as in all civil cases, because every poor man must be judged as to the amount he needs. But the tamhui is not only distributed by three, but also collected by three, because it is not a fixed matter, but each person approached must be judged every day as to the amount he is to give that day. The tamhui is collected every day and the kupa once a week. The tamhui is meant for any poor people who may apply, while the kupa is intended for the poor of that particular city. Again, we have these, we're, we're fleshing out what we mean by these two different structures. The kupa is meant to be, I think, more of a civil supply, like the Jewish free loan, right? The, a money supply or a resource supply that can be applied to for help. The collection happens as a group, but can be administered by one person because that's the intent. That's what we understand as the goal of that money. The tamhui, though, has to be done three by three because in every situation, the evaluation has to happen in the moment. These are not funds that are, you know, you don't just send the money to a, a, an anonymous person and they distribute it back out. These are people in your community, trusted members that as a group, they have to, the three of them, evaluate needs each and every day when managing the tamhui and distribute it each and every time. Because you have to evaluate the need and evaluate what you can give. Every time has to be judged. Another implication there is that a tamhui is very much variable on the moment. It isn't a everyone has to give it all the time, but it depends on what the needs of the moment are. I didn't include the text, but there's also a conversation here um, about how you can move money from one fund to another. It isn't a given that you can just transfer money from one place to another. You have to actually kind of think about what was given for what intention and what is it being distributed for. Uh, I think that might be, let me, un I think we are, that is the end of the text. But what I wanted to open this up to, and let me see, all right, I think we've got, what I wanted to open this up to now, uh, there is a question from the audience about how do they evaluate the needs for the tamhui? Well, it really depends on, does somebody have enough food for the day? Remember, all the way back in Mishnah Pe'ah, they talk about that bread amount. If somebody doesn't have that amount of bread to eat that day, you make sure they get that amount. Um, now, again, I want to be very clear. 
I am not looking at this as an explicit, we have to take this and make policy positions um, as Americans or as Canadians or whoever else is watching, but I think this is this in, should inform the way we think about providing for others in our community. Another caveat that should be aware, that you should all be aware of, when thinking about these kinds of concepts, it is entirely valid for someone to come in and say this unless explicitly stated otherwise, this is referring to Jews and Jews alone. There is absolutely, I think, a valid reading of any discussion of communal obligation from halakha, from Jewish law, that we have to respect someone who says, this is about us, this is about our community, not about everybody. The obligation to provide food for each and every person is limited to the boundaries of our kehila, our community, and not necessarily to every single person we encounter. Um, again, not my ideal, not my personal preference to be, you know, particularistic. But I don't. But I don't want you to think that that is completely invalid or that isn't part of the discussion. One of the tensions we have to consider, not just as a Jewish community, but as people participating in different circles of community, be it state, city, country. Um, hemisphere is where do we draw our lines if we don't have enough? How do we marshal our resources? How we how do we distribute them in ways that make sure that the people that we are most responsible for get what they need if we can't give it to everyone? Um, so I actually kind of want to open this up to anybody who wants to speak or, or, or offer. What are some of your questions? How might you want to play this out? What are your first thoughts on how this might play out in our societies? Don't you think it's progressed from the 1500s that we're much more a community beyond just our Jewish community? I, you know, I think it's a question. Um, I don't think it's wrong to say that these people are my first concern. Like, I think it, it's in, in many ways, it, it's, I'm not going to say natural because I always question that as a, as a line, but I don't think it's outrageous for someone to say, I'm going to take care of my own first. Mm, the same way you would take care of your family first and well, it would and spread to your religious community and beyond. But I guess I'm not sure I would have had as much trouble with this concept a year ago. That, as I do now, because there are so many people that do not have food. It, again, the, the reason that this is kind of, when, when uh, Eddie asked me to teach something, this is where my, I think it was very quick. I'm like, I don't know what I'm gonna teach. And then the immediate response is, oh wait, this one. Um, because of food insecurity, because so many people in, not just, you know, the the big adult, the big picture of like, oh, there's hunger in America. Like, no, like this is, it's immediate. Um, I know people personally who struggled with food security. Um, I've been involved loosely with organizations in Phoenix that address this through mutual aid. And I've become ever like increasingly more interested in mutual aid organizations as a concept because of the way that they've addressed so many of the immediate needs of the larger community. And just to kind of take that step, I think there is a theoretical framework that we can create about thinking of our obligations to our communities to ensure food security or financial security on this idea of the parallel tamhui and kupa structure. That a tamhui is essentially a mutual aid network, right? It's not about just gathering money it's about making sure that people have milk if they need it you know some like the way it works in phoenix mutual aid phoenix a shout out to them um um is an organization where you send an email saying i need milk or i need uh, you know i i need a 12 pack of coke and somebody takes the email puts it into a spreadsheet for you know for a request and then somebody goes and buys it and drops it off or you, or you can go to a drop-off point held once a week and get things you need. 
Or they've been working on having fridges in the community that if somebody needs something, they can just go buy the fridge, you know, held or secured by various community partners and just take it from the fridge if they need it. Um, it, it is an interesting concept to, to, to embrace that people are not necessarily going to take more than they need when they are living at subsistence levels. In the Topanga area, we used to have our little bookstores in different houses. That's now spread out to canned food, bread, milk, and that it's it's amazing. But it's an amazing community. Uh, but on top of that, though, is it's not enough to just have a tamhui. It's not enough to just be concerned with the moment-to-moment -moment needs. You have to think in terms of larger or more systemic problems or systemic provisions. The kupa seems to be more about making sure people have enough week to week. And if you wanted to extend that month to month, year to year, that there's a community obligation to be thinking about not only how do we make sure everybody gets through the day, but how do we make sure everyone can get through the week, the month, the year, that this provision that this concern isn't just about being nice or relationships it's also about practical logistics because the feel good is clear you know the tom Hui management like feel good is clear although there are additional comments about a good gabi of these funds does not take the criticisms of the poor to heart because it, if you're the one distributing, you also become the focus of a lot of potential negative attention. If you don't, if somebody doesn't agree with how you're distributing the resources, you become a target. But that doesn't mean that you're supposed to refrain from it. It's just a, just take, you know, recognize that you're in a public position, you're going to take fire. Um, but I want to return to that question. How, what are the, what kind of implications do you see for our environment for our society that we can draw from this framework. And Eddie, I think you can ask questions too, if you've got any or ideas. Yeah, I, I, I want to see how we can play this out in our society, right? Like uh, one of the things that we see is that when we're helping our unsheltered uh, and folks who are suffering from homelessness, we try to provide meals as well the immediate meals, but how do we get, like, how can we encourage the greater Jewish community through text uh, to validate that argument that we should be providing meals for folks who are starving? You know, I know personally folks who are out on the streets who haven't eaten for days, you know, so uh, our organization tries to provide that meal. Uh, so um, yeah, that's my question. How can we uh, use text and uh, some Torah again to validate the, the need uh, for, for us to step out and, and, and support? Um, well, I think the first, the first idea is to understand that this is a concern of our tradition, that we can, and that it is not just about feel good. It's not charity. The, the language that is used is tzedakah, justice, righteousness. I, there's, there's sort of a kind of, you know, a cutesy and trope of, you know, tzedakah doesn't mean charity, it means righteousness. But honestly, what it really means is, is that we put our money where our mouth is, that we have a financial obligation to provide, and that that obligation is not just one-on-one -on -one or, you know, in our, like, just about the range we can reach with our own hand, but that we should be thinking in terms of organization and structure. Whether it be just ensuring that every Jew in your community has enough to eat and a place to sleep. And I'll just to, to get off the, I'm the rabbi and now I'm, I'm Brody, the, 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 you know, the, the radical, um, that Mishnah, it doesn't specify how many days that person staying there is were required to give them a bed and a pillow. It just says if they're wandering and they stay there the night, we give it to them. Now, in theory, somebody could stay for a while, right? Like if you're wondering, maybe you stay a few days, maybe you stay a few weeks, it gets interesting. Um, there is additional sources on this that actually um, discuss like, if you are a merchant coming through a town, 
Uh, you're obligated to kind of set aside a certain amount of money as if you were a resident and you can take it back on your way out um, because you're not a resident of the town or if you're staying, but if you're staying in an area for like 30 days, like you have to pay a certain amount to the communal fund. Um, but if you reside there, you're immediately required to start paying into the coupa. That residency is a function of your obligation to, your to, to others. That there's an, in there's an inherent obligation that we have to one another based on where we live in our proximity. Um, and I also think like that's a, the idea that this isn't really an option, that it's an obligation is something that has to be driven home. That this giving, it isn't about charity, it's not volunteering. Like all, you are absolutely encouraged to give more than you have to. But this tzedakah, this providing for others is a communal tax. It's you. Now we have to be careful because we again live in a society where religious inclination shouldn't be the primary argument for policy. Like I shouldn't be going. You know, I can I can't stand up on uh, you know outside the Capitol in in Phoenix and say as a Jew I think we need to have a policy like that we, we need to have a law providing for the, for all the people's needs. Everyone needs to have two meals. That's what the law says. Because honestly, one, not a Jewish country. The Two, Jewish law isn't binding on everybody. It's binding on me. I need to make sure that the people around me have at least two meals a day. But, you know, for my non-Jewish neighbors, I can't go to them and say, hey, pay up. They have no obligation. <laughs> But I think it can inform our sense of what is this what is this system trying to achieve for a society and looking at that as a motive to say we should at least be considering how do we ensure everyone has enough to eat. Not because you know it and notice none of these means testings are they they worked, right? You worked for your food. There's the means testing here is do you have enough actual food to eat? Other means testing is, do they have a wealthy family that can provide for them? Uh, do you have enough money uninvested? Like, you know, the, the goal is not to say somebody can play the system to make sure they never have to pay for their food because they make sure they don't have enough money liquid to be able to qualify. It really is meant to be though, if somebody doesn't have, have enough money for two meals for the day, we have to make sure they do. But what is, how does that translate for, you know, Americans? Is that something we can ask? Is that something we want to ask? Is that something that should only be in the private sphere? Is this something that should be a communal policy? Um, Do we really teach it's an obligation to ask? It, or to give? We, we, I think the idea that we are obligated to, to ensure other people eat enough is often an uncomfortable thing for Americans. Um, we don't like obligations, never have, never will. Um, we're, we're, a, we're big on the rights and the freedoms, not as happy to discuss about obligations or duties, which is what it is. Like that, I'm not, that's, I don't want to say that as a value judgment. That's just the orientation of how we think about um, our communal relationships. What are our rights to? Not necessarily what are our duties to? Um, I, I give an example. How difficult is it to get people to uh, do uh, jury duty? Right? That is, that's one of those few civic obligations we have that everyone is technically required to meet. And there's no end of literature and comedy about avoiding it. Um, but ask, and, but I, and I think we've seen this in the wake of in this pandemic, is ask an American to help out of the goodness of their heart and a lot of the time you get people to give generously. Um, but I think it, it's it's a part of this conversation that I think Jewish thought can contribute to the civic discourse, that it's not just about generosity, it's about obligation. It's nice you wanna give, but you have to anyways. Like As a Jew, I go, I have to give money to the, I have to at least, look to ways to give tzedakah and to financially and personally support the needs of others. 
it's also a nice thing to do. Like, and we, we again, Barbara, I don't think you do what you do because you feel like you, you have to or else. You do it because you it, it moves you. It's in, You recognize that it means something. But I'm also guessing if I said, this is an obligation that we have, you're not going to be like, oh no, I don't want to do it anymore. Right? <laughs> We're... There's an, it's an interesting dynamic to explore, and that's probably a whole other class, of the concept of obligation in Jewish thought, that it's an opportunity for joy. To kind of bring it home, because I know we're starting to creep toward the, toward the two o'clock mark, um, we, the, the, there's another trope that comes up. Mitzvah doesn't mean good deed, right? I don't think there's a religious school in the country, in a synagogue, that has not had somebody say that at some point. But it's true. It's a commandment. It's an it's the statement of an obligation. It's the fulfillment of an obligation. A mitzvah is the minimum expected of us each and every day. You know, when it when we if if you pray if you pray three times a day, you're fulfilling a mitzvah. But you're also fulfilling a mitzvah when you pay your taxes, when you contribute to the kupa, when you make sure your neighbor has food. And what kind of world would we have if we thought in terms of these things are not nice things to do or examples of superlative, exceptional people being generous and wonderful, but rather that the baseline expectation for all people is to be decent and concerned with one another and providing for one another so that those superlative feeling actions are able to be recognized as extra and praised but that everybody has enough. That I think at the end is really the orientation that we should take from these sources is we always should be concerned with making sure everyone has enough. Whether that pans out into conversations about universal basic income or that we need to make sure our tax code is structured so that charitable donations or voluntary giving are rewarded and encouraged. These are all things that should be open to conversation because they address that same concern. How do we make sure that we're fulfilling our obligations to one another? How do we make sure everyone gets their, their two meals of bread every day? And so with that, I think I'll, I'll wrap it up and you know let everybody assume that some rabbis can actually end before their time. Thank you, thank you so much. Well, that was such a blissful uh, presentation and, and really grounding for, for our work because I think that as Jews, we, we definitely use Torah and our text to fuel us in our work, to fuel what we do. Um, and, it, and it's really grounding to go back to that Torah and say, this is justifying our action, our, our here and now, right? Um, which, which I just love. So thank you so much, Rabbi Brody, such an amazing presentation. Um, we look forward to learning with you all the time. For everybody joining us on Facebook, for anybody joining us on the Zoom call, we appreciate you. Have an amazing day. We have another event starting up right now at 2. Uh, so make sure to stand by either on the Facebook or email us to get um, the Zoom link. We're going to be talking about uh, uh, Jews in Mexico and a specific politician who allowed uh, Jews uh, to come in during the Holocaust. So uh, join us. That comes up next. Thank you so much, Rabbi Brody. Take care.